Sass Backwards is sponsored by Austin Lawrence Group, specializing in demand gen for SaaS. It sure is noisy. I deleted 100 emails from vendors just this morning. Your buyer has gotten better at ignoring you, and you're going to need a big idea if you want to cut through all that clutter. Austin Lawrence is just the right agency to help you find it. So if your campaigns are falling on deaf eyeballs, let's talk. Visit austinlawrence.com today, and let's build something bigger. Welcome to the SaaS Backwards Podcast, where we reverse engineer the success of fast-growing SaaS firms and explore strategies CMOs and CEOs are using to drive their businesses forward. Welcome to SaaS Backwards, a podcast that helps SaaS CMOs and CEOs to accelerate growth and enhance profitability. Our guest today is Vinay Baguette, founder and CEO of Trust Radius, a review site for business technology, serving both buyers and vendors. It helps buyers to make better product decisions based on unbiased and insightful reviews. Trust Radius also helps vendors leverage the voice of their customers across their sales and marketing channels. Vinay, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Ken. Excited to talk to you today. Likewise, I've really been looking forward to this episode. And before we dig in, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit more about the company? I'm a Brit living in Austin, Texas. Been here for about 24 years and a repeat entrepreneur. My first company served the nonprofit sector. We helped charities use the internet for fundraising, communications, and advocacy. We grew it to become a public company and sold it in 2012. And the inception of my new company was born through a struggle I saw at my first company where we made some technology purchase decisions that in the end we regretted and had buyer's remorse. And that led me to feel there would be a better way to help buyers research technology products. Well, that's great. I mean, I think the category of reviews and independent information on products, it's a great category and there's a lot of value to be created both for the vendors and the users. Let's dig into how you guys do that and the meaningfulness of category. And I think it's worth noting that you've made a big investment over the last five years in trying to capture buyer behavior. And you shared with us before the episode today, the latest, the 2022 report that you make available on your website and in socials. Can we start right there talking about that 2022 report on buyer behavior, which I think you headline as the buyer disconnect in 2022. Let's talk a little bit about that report, the methodology, and then we can dig into some of the findings. Yes. So as you mentioned, it's a report that we've been repeating and evolving over the last five years because we've really wanted to monitor the trends in terms of how buyer behavior was changing. And each year we've surveyed roughly 2,000 technology buyers at companies across the world of all shapes and sizes. And we've also surveyed several hundred vendors as well to try and understand their lens on the market. And what we found in years past is that there's a disconnect between how buyers think and how vendors go to market, hence the term B2B disconnect. Though I do think vendors are starting to wake up to those differences each year. But some of the major themes in this year's reports were there's an overarching theme of a desire to self-serve and to control one's own journey. The journey isn't linear as a buyer, but there is a strong desire to use independent sources rather than rely on the vendor, whether that's the salesperson 
or materials provided by the vendor. There is a desire to be able to find key pieces of information online without barriers. Pricing is the number one thing, criteria for buyers. But buyers also want to have the ability to touch and feel the product, either through a trial or a demo or some kind of way that they can feel the product. And they also really want to understand if the product is right for their use case and to have independent validation of that. So those are some of the major themes that we see in the buyer behavior. It's also important to just understand the demographics of today's buyer. I'm a Gen Xer, but the reality is that 65% of today's B2B buyers, including in large enterprises, are millennials and Gen Z. And we have to remember those individuals have grown up with a different set of influences and millennials now constitute the largest managerial segment of the population. They're in positions of authority. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, you just sort of riffed on many of the key findings, but I want to start with the last thing, which is easy for people, Gen X and older to forget, which is that the real buying decision is made by people much younger than ourselves and their behaviors and preferences are really different. And they're used to getting what they want kind of when they want it, how they want it. And in your report, we find this, this two things, not relying on vendor materials as much as they used to, or a very limited use, which is really bad for us in the content marketing business. And you know, having pricing and the demo available on the website, I think these are two like fundamental things that we see. And I agree with you that the Gen X, millennial, and younger marketing people understand their peers. So they get it and they're trying to move their organizations closer to those behaviors. But what are we going to do? Let's let's unpack it a little bit. What are we going to do if, if vendor materials are less influential? How can we do something about that? And one thing I've seen in our own marketing and that of some of our clients is that getting customers to share those materials and endorsing those materials as fruitful. Yeah. I mean, not yeah. unlike your own report, right? Your own report yeah. is very credible. And the fact that somebody else would share it would make it even more so. So if we could just talk a little bit about that, yeah. how do we make materials if we're going to build them more useful? I mean, vendor content marketing is by no means dead. It's more about adjusting to what the buyer is really seeking and being an educational resource. You found value in the report we issued because it's an educational piece of research that stands alone independently of what my company is trying to proselytize. Of course, it's aligned to our mission. That's why we put it out there, but it's independently valuable to the information seeker. What I've seen companies do from a content strategy is to really seek to provide value to the buyer to help them along their journey. Of course, there are different phases of a journey, just trying to understand you know, and categorize a problem to understand maybe what the panoply of options are, and then tools to help them actually even run a trial or self-educate. I recently ran a panel at Saster with three CMOs, and two of the CMOs talked about providing assistance to the buyers during their research process. One of them, the CMO of Smart Bear, talked about how they built a lot of educational content, a lot of educational content for the developer community, product-centric, but also just very, almost like a curriculum for them to kind of get smart on the category and on their products. Another company, Clavio, they emphasize having people do trials 
but oftentimes when people do trials, they need assistance. And so they've changed the model of sales engagement instead of being a you know a traditional sales interaction. It's actually trying to be more of an assistant to make someone successful with a trial. And so it's just a mindset shift, whether that's a written resource or a private community that's offered to customers or engaging them in a third-party community or providing, again, assistance. The, the mindset is, how do you help the buyer buy? How do you make the buyer help the buyer along their journey of discovery? recognizing that the buyers want to control their journey, it's non-linear, and that they're trying to go through this path of exploration. It's all about being useful and assistive to them on that pathway. And I think that the research you have here really bears that out, right? That the buyers are not looking, they're not starting at the vendor website necessarily. And in fact, they're building their own communities, right? Whether it's horizontal, across an industry or is it a you know by title like a vertical thing so you know for people in marketing there's the peak community people in 3d manufacturing have a much broader like the engineering on that have much broader communities is there a place in that world also for folks like analysts i mean they're the traditional kind of mediators or arbiters of success in these vendor communities you know how do we kind of reshape or rethink independent advice, I think maybe is a way to kind of categorize that. Yeah. I mean, the overarching trend we see is less reliance on salespeople as a source of influence and less reliance on vendor materials and increasing reliance on third-party sources, just to kind of laser in on the role of salespeople. This is the first year in the five years we've been doing the study that sales has dropped out of the top five sources of influence to the buyer along their journey as a primary education source. It is different by purchase size, 100K plus purchases, the role of sales is more significant, but in sub 100K purchases, it, we've really seen a precipitous decline. Now as to analysts specifically, we've actually seen in this year's report an increasing utilization of analysts because they're in that category of third-party independent advice. The struggle with analysts often though is the categorization too broad in terms of how they're grouping products for many new categories. Analysts are often not the first to cover new categories. They, they lag what's sort of being done in the marketplace, they may only focus on a certain small subset of vendors who reach their financial criteria. And those criteria may not be so relevant to technology buyers who want something cutting edge. And also there's the truism that to me, you know, when I started Trust Radius, you know, one of the reasons I started it, because I felt that there was a void in the marketplace left by analysts. To me, getting advice from an analyst is kind of like picking a restaurant for a special occasion based upon advice from someone who's interviewed maitre d's but not dined at the restaurants. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great analogy. I love it. And I think especially as these folks get longer in their career as analysts, right, they're further from the expertise that made them interesting initially as analysts. So, And I don't want to say there aren't very smart analysts out there who do a good job of having a high level pulse on a market. But the reality, there's a difference between having a high level pulse on a market and listening to vendors and listening to a few customer conversations versus living in those shoes. What we see from technology buyers, uh, again, is a craving for that tangibility, whether that's specificity about price, access to a trial or a demo or discrete information about use case. They want specific insights. The reality is with SaaS, there are very few bad products anymore. You know, with the need to renew your customers every year, you can't survive if you have a bad product. But it doesn't mean that a good product is the best product for you. 
And what matters is having the right product for your use case. And that's often where analyst advice falls down because it often tends to be too broad and too general and not specific to a use case. Whereas advice from users and companies and peers can be specific, right? You could say, well, SAP Hybris is amazing in general, but it's not great for this specific use case. And again, the reason the kernel of the idea for Trust Radius was at my last company, Convio, we bought an expensive piece of HR software. It was $200,000. We signed a two-year contract. We rolled it out to 450 people. The product's a leader in the Gartner MQ. We spoke to the references provided by the vendor. We trusted the salesperson's assurances on features. And we rolled it out and we realized that something that was super important to us, how we handed our vacation policy, was not well supported in the product. And, you know, the reality is we didn't speak to anyone who had the same use case as us. And I think that's the miss. Again, the data suggests that analysts remain very important. But I think why there's a surge in usage of communities and review forums is that people are craving insights from people in the trenches, just like them, and want the specificity of speaking to people who have the same use case as them. So I think really you're making the case for triangulation, right? You're saying hey, there's more than one way to get valuable information. The analysts are going to tell you, you know, what is the trajectory in the category among the major players? They're going to eliminate trends. They're going to do an important job. But if you want to know more than this information gathering exercise, right, which is what it is, informed information gathering and, and well thought through the process, if you want more, you're going to have to dig deeper. And this is a way for you to dig deeper. One is, hey, let's go to reviews review sites that give us another level and then write in your own data, you know, getting engagement with your peers. So you almost have three or four top ways of getting your information in addition to the, the vendor supplied materials, which will help you. So I think that's important here, the idea of triangulation, which I think you can almost institutionalize if you want to as a software buyer, right? Say, hey, I am going to try and get it. Uh, so let me give you a real life example as a consumer. So my daughter's 13. She came back from summer camp, inspired to work out at home. We live in Texas, so she wants a treadmill. So I went on a journey of discovery. I started my research process actually at an editorial site I trust called Wirecutter. It's part of the New York Times. You could argue they're an analyst in some way, right? They were recommending number one pick was a Nordic track product. I Googled the device, found a bunch of independent reviews from specialists, sort of running sites or, and, and so forth. And I found the reviews were helpful, but mostly spoke about features, but not about what it's like to own and service the product. And then I found some very disparaging feedback on Reddit about how terrible customer service was. And if you had an implementation issue, good luck getting service, et cetera. So it scared me. So then I went onto Facebook and I asked my network and I got a few comical responses like, yeah, the Nordic track's great, no reliability issues, but it could be because we haven't used it in two years. Through to, yes, it makes a lovely clothing hanger. Through to a friend who actually said, you know what, you should go buy from Costco because if something goes wrong, you've got the warranty. And so I went to Costco. I was like, of course, you know, they're great. I went to Costco and I found the same product, white label through Costco for 30% less with free delivery and implementation, and then the Costco trust warranty. And I made a great decision, but I spent hours on it. That's my personality. I'm diligent and anal about every important decision I make in my life. And, you know, I may be an edge case, but I think a lot of consumers 
do you do that triangulation? It's about feeling confident in a buying purchase that you've made. And just think about it. The software decision my company made that committed us to a $200,000 contract, we didn't do adequate triangulation, obviously. That was the hard lesson learned. But I also believe that one of the huge opportunities is helping buyers, again, learn from other people's research experiences. So one of the things that we're working on at Trust Radius is actually helping people document their research process with a viewpoint to then sharing that with others. That's a great narrative. And I think it's uh, very relatable. We've all made decisions that worked out well or not based on some kind of similar journey. And I think sometimes for marketers, we don't go to the living room and say, what does this look like in my living room? And I certainly talk with my team about you know, the monies my clients spend. And I say, you know, this $50,000 looks enormous in our living rooms and we have to keep this in mind. You know, that would be a gigantic decision for anyone in their personal lives. So there's going to be some fear of flying and we have to help our clients make this decision. It can't just be, oh, come on now. And I think narratives help. And I think that was really cool. Let's kind of turn our attention to what this means. Okay. So we have this environment and we agree that it's changed a lot, but so what does the data say to CEOs and CMOs about how to think about marketing investment? You know, what should we be doing differently to take advantage of and support as business leaders, we have to get on these trends and take advantage of them. I don't mean it in an impure way, but we have to ride these trends. And yeah. how do we invest? Once we accept some of these fundamental truths, how do we invest to get on trend? Yeah, I probably kind of boil it down to five kind of key actions. One is adapting to how the buyer wants to buy. Don't put up too many barriers, right? So it may be hard for you to publish kind of completely transparent pricing. Some products is too complex to do that, but give people an indication. Oftentimes they're just looking for t-shirt pricing. Am I in the ballpark? That's, that's a really important point. I just want to underline that. I, I hate to interrupt people, but you know, indicative pricing will tell me if I should continue. And not having indicative pricing and being in a mismatch situation is a terrible experience, right? Right. So, so please continue. The same applies to access to touch and feel the product, right? What can you do to make it feel tangible online? A lot of companies now offering online product tours, still most of them are gating them, which isn't as, but, you know, obviously there's a trade-off between gating them and capturing the lead to be able to nurture them versus not. But the buyer is seeking some kind of access to a product tour without necessarily having to speak to a salesperson. Three, making sure use case information is clearly present on your website and validated by customers. One of the things that many of our customers do is take content from their reviews Using our platform, they categorize the quotes into themes, like this is a quote about this use case, this ROI statement, this competitor, and then they dynamically syndicate that content to the website. So for example, we work with a company called Matillion in the ETL space, and they work with different cloud data warehouses like Snowflake and Query, Amazon Redshift, et cetera. So instead of, they've got pages for each of those use cases, but instead of just saying, trust us, we're awesome with BigQuery, they syndicate specific customer quotes to that page about how Matillion works with BigQuery, conversely, how Matillion works with Redshift. And so it's bringing voice of customer to validate their claims in context around use cases. Or, you know, another example is we work with a company called Rubrik that competes with other data backup providers. They have compete pages and they bring in quotes from customers who've made the selection of them versus the competitive product onto those compete pages. So it isn't just them saying, hey, we're better than brand X. It's actually their customers saying why they've made that decision. 
So it's one thing to make a claim that you're great for a use case or great for a segment of customer or great for a persona versus a competitor. It's a thousand times more powerful if those claims are supported by evidence from your customers. And the value of bringing in from a review platform is it's third-party ratified. It isn't just, you know, a curated manicure testimonial. It's a stream of evidence, hopefully 50 or 100 quotes on that topic that gives the buyer confidence. So again, that's all in the theme of giving the buyer what they want in your own digital channels, also building educational content that informs and provides value to the buyer, independent of whether they buy from you or not. Just like, as you pointed out, we provided value from our B2B disconnect report. The second thing is adapting sales to behave differently. The age of pure cold calling is diminishing. People are sales averse. I interviewed the CMO of Software AG and German company recently, and she said they talk about sales aversion and she's trying to reprogram their sales organization to understand where the buyer is in their journey use the data they have in-house about what that content that buyer has consumed so far to add value and to have a more informed conversation. So they're not going into those conversations cold. They're going into conversations with a prospect informed about what the prospect has consumed and is interested. And so they can have a more tailored conversation. So belying that is a strategy to get really good at tracking data about the buyer's journey and buyer behavior. Get into that more in a second. The third is recognizing that buyers are not researching or beginning their journey on your own venues and owned media. They're searching elsewhere in third-party forums. So whether that's a community, like you mentioned, Peak or Reddit or Quora or Google, obviously. And then of course, trusted destinations like TrustRadius. Over a million technology buyers come to TrustRadius each month. 75% of them are managers or above making decisions. 54% of them are mid-market and enterprise companies. These are companies making big, expensive decisions, and they spend 10 to 12 minutes reading reviews or comparing products. They're not casually looking at content. They're deeply reading the content. And so it's critical to understand that you have to be part of the conversation, whether that's in a community or in a review forum. Being vacant and letting your reputation happen to you is irresponsible. You have to be present. You have to be in the conversation. When it comes to review forums, you've got to pick the few that align to your ideal customer profile and your target market. You don't want to go too wide, but being present doesn't just mean focusing on your score. It means having a meaningful body of content that helps the buyer understand if your product is right for your use case, for the use case that they care about. That means you don't need hundreds of reviews. You need enough reviews of quality that help the buyer make an informed decision that no one's going to read 50 reviews. They might read three or five or 10, but they want to find people who they pattern match to. And they want to find people who have something that helps them understand if there's alignment with their use case, how did this person make the decision? What are the primary pros and cons? So being present in review forums and communities is important. Smart Bear has got some of their own developers to be active in engineering communities and they've trained their customers and rewarded their customers to be active in independent communities as well. So there are different ways to kind of be active in those communities and have a voice. And another really important piece of advice for CEOs and CMOs is be listening. Oftentimes as marketers, we go to market with positioning that's sort of thought of in a vacuum when the most important insight into positioning is what are your customers actually saying? So some of the best brands we work with like Cisco do a great job of listening to the feedback in customer reviews to influence both their product roadmap and their positioning. 
the product marketing team at SolarWinds told me that they were going to market with a certain set of messages and they reconstituted those messages as based upon what customers stated that they valued most about their solutions. So we may guess what people value, but we should listen to what feedback they give us to really refine how we go to market. And last but certainly not least, data strategy is absolutely critical. So first, instrumenting your own properties to be able to understand what content people have consumed, what pages they've visited, how engaged they are. Is it one person? Is it a whole buying committee? But also realizing that third-party data is critical because people are spending so much of their time outside of your properties. So in the case of Trust Radius, we instrument our site to track what companies are consuming. Are they reading pricing content? Are they comparing products? Are they researching a specific basket of products? Are they researching the category? Are they watching video content? And then we're able to tell a brand, here are the companies that are researching you and here's what they're doing and here's who you've been compared to. We can also tell them, here are all the companies researching your competitors or your market, but not researching you. So the value of that data is really threefold. One is it can help you target in-market buyers more efficiently. So instead of just marketing to your entire ICP, you can concentrate your ad spend or your prospecting efforts on in-market buyers and drive a much higher response rate as a result. Number two, you can personalize. You can use the intelligence about where that person is in their journey or who they're comparing you to or whether you're not in the conversation. Personalize the advertising or the outreach to them. And, you know, if you're in a competitive situation, you can use that data to position correctly. It could also indicate that you've got churn risk amongst your customers. In this economy, preserving your account base is probably the number one imperative for every company. And the reality is you can get clear signals as to whether someone is showing the propensity to leave by tracking kind of their behavior. So the data strategy is a super important pillar of the whole go-to-market strategy today. That's awesome. There's a lot there. I want to go back to just one point, which is the customer insights and messaging and product. I've decided in my own practice that it's a real red flag when we meet a prospect and they want to get right to the business of putting out marketing information without either demonstrating a really great customer listening function or engaging with us to do that. You know, we call mm -hmm. it fundamental customer knowledge. And we feel like we don't have that fundamental customer knowledge. We're going to fail. You know, it might be a great 10 month or 15 month run, but it's not going to be a multi-year relationship because we will fail if we don't have that insight. And I think it's important to just highlight that for people. The other thing, I guess there's two things here that I want to talk about. You're actually creating intent data in a way that I think is more functional than that which we might buy from the leading vendors of intent information. Because it's, it's sort of secondhand intent, right? Oh, you know, Mary is out on these web pages out on the great wide web. There's, I guess you're inferring that the content consumption across the web is indicative of a buying intent. Whereas if we have this comparison, like this content comparison going on, I think that's really powerful. Yeah. Can you talk, is there like a good example that you might be able to talk about, even if you don't name the brand, about how that's impacted either absolutely. or marketing strategy? Yeah, absolutely. So just actually to build on kind of your distinction on intent data, I think it's helpful to sort of understand kind of the three forms of intent data that are available to, to B2B marketers. Of course, there's first party intent. First party intent, who's on your website, who's responding to your email. That's always going to be the strongest signal. The challenge with first party intent data is twofold. 
One is it's a narrow aperture. Most companies only see 5% of the market in terms of, you know, potential deal cycles. Their competitors are seeing many that they're not seeing. The second issue is sometimes people are doing their research on independent venues before they spend time with the brand. So if you lie solely on your first party intent data, you may get be getting to those buyers too late to kind of take the lead on influencing them. There's a truism, obviously, that the earlier you start the conversation with the buyer, even if it's through providing value-added content, you're building brand preference. So getting there first is super important. The other form of intent that you alluded to is third-party intent. Typically, keyword search-based data based upon thousands and thousands of web properties. It's a signal of interest, but it doesn't signal clear purchasing propensity. Someone just may be researching a topic, et cetera. So the data volume tends to be very high with those third-party intent providers, but the signal-to-noise ratio is not so high because it's costing us an extremely wide net. So the data that comes from a trust radius is predicated on in-market buyers spending tens of minutes researching products. And so the way they come to our site is on specific keyword search terms like product X reviews, product X versus product Y, best ABC software, you know, so-and-so pros and cons, and a plethora of long tail search terms that are all associated with evaluating technology. So when they land on our site, they have intent already. And then we deepen that intent by giving them content and tracking exactly what they're consuming and seeing them spend, again, 10, 12 minutes on certain key pages on our site. So it becomes a very, very clear signal of interest, but also rich intelligence about which products are in consideration and where they may be in their journey. Are they down to the wire comparing to final products or are they more mid-final trying to understand who they should shortlist? And that intelligence is incredibly valuable. And the way that we help brands action that data is feeding it into their CRM to Salesforce, feeding it into ABM tools like Six Sense of Demand Base for display and social advertising, and feeding it directly into LinkedIn for LinkedIn campaigns. Now, ask your question about what sort of results we see can speak to a few different examples. For LinkedIn advertising, we've seen anywhere between a 50 and 100% response rate just in base click-through rate on an ad when compared to marketing to one's ICP. We also had a very big company test our category intent data. So this is everyone in the category researching related products that use demand base, and they were comparing it to the first party data in demand base from the brands on website interactions. And the click-through rate on the intent data we were providing was identical to their first party data, which is really interesting because you'd think that first party would be the strongest signal of intent, but this shows that this adjacent audience who were not considering the product, but were considering their competition was clearly in market and when exposed to an ad, click through at the same rate as someone who is already engaging with that brand. We work with um, a company called Logic Monitor in the network monitoring space. And we've got a documented case study with them. They certainly see between a 40 and a 60% higher click-through rate on their initial ads, but they also find that people that they continue to advertise to that are showing intent on Trust Radius convert faster. So they see kind of a, not just a net new pipeline, but an acceleration effect as well. And then some of the companies who use Sixth Sense, or Sixth Sense has a measure called view-through rates. We work with a fintech company that has compared the view-through rates on general ICP advertising with the intent signals from Trust Radius, and they're seeing a six times higher view-through rate 
when marketing to people who have intent on trust radius. And just for those who aren't familiar with the view through rate, the theory is in advertising that people are exposed to an ad, but they don't always click through. They visit the website at some later juncture. And so view through rate measures the correlation between someone seeing an ad and do they visit the site within 30 days. And so again, this fintech company saw a six times higher increase through use of the intent data. So have any of these clients actually gotten to the point of an ROI on customer voice? I mean, is that something that we can get to? And I want to also kind of land on how do CMOs invest in this category of information? So let's maybe start with the investment. Like how do we invest in and leverage customer advocacy? And then how do we build an ROI case? Because at some point, CMO is going to have to have a meeting with the CFO, right? So I think we need to get to that. Yeah, I can speak to sort of the ROI with respect to kind of how we operate and how we sort of deliver value and how companies we work with kind of compute ROI. There are probably kind of three primary pillars of the ROI. One is the brand influence, right? If we recognize the fact that buyers are beginning their journey with search and on communities and review forums, again, I feel it's a lot of my customers will say it's irresponsible to not be present there. Latney Kanan, the CMO of Sixth Sense, actually said that in an interview with us. It's fiscally irresponsible to not be present where your buyers are. But in terms of how do you actually translate that to an ROI, what we've seen is that brands who take an active presence strategy do see a higher share of audience in their category. They see more page views. So those page views constitute in-market buyers. And so you can measure an influence effect in terms of what proportion of your pipeline and your close one deals are being influenced. But you can also see that when you grow your counts of page views, there's a correlation between that and sort of inbound inquiry and just brand consideration. Again, if you do a good job of building your content effectively on a review platform like TrustRadius, it goes beyond consideration to actually creating preference. If your customers are saying things about you that are differentiating, that's incredibly helpful in terms of steering that buyer's opinions early on. The second way to think about ROI is when you use content from customer voice in your own channels, what are the economic benefits of that? We found that in A-B tests, when brands use our review syndication on landing pages, on average, they see a 30% lifting conversion. Veeam, one of our customers in the backup space, tested us on their trial page and saw a 70% lifting conversion. The other benefit we see is an SEO benefit. So brands using, again, review syndication on key information pages find that content is extremely keyword rich. It's crawled by Google and helps the brand rank for more keywords. The widget causes about a 20 to 30% lift in engagement on the page, a deeper scroll depth, more time on page. When you put a heat mapping tool like a hot jar on the page, it shows a lot of activity around the carousel as people are clicking to see more quotes and see if they find someone they relate to. The truism I talk about is like, it's one thing to have a customer quote. Say you had a customer quote from the CMO of Nike on a page. But someone said, you know, I'm not a CMO, I'm a digital director, that's great, but I want to know if what digital directors think, or I'm not Nike, I'm a regional Boston-based company, a manufacturing company, and I want to find someone I can relate to. And so the idea of this like hero quote from a really great brand may be a good ego thing, but it doesn't actually relate to the buyer. So a good part of why we see high engagement on review carousels is people are finding someone they can pattern match to, someone in the same industry, someone with the same title as them to see, oh, people like me appreciate this this product. And what we see, again, 
analytically is Google has something called a page value score, which is an indicator of like the quality of the page. We see about 30% lift in the Google page value score when you incorporate a review widget. So bringing customer voice into that page. Oftentimes people are afraid of traffic leakage outside of their site. Typically we see less than a 1% click rate externally, but we always pop up a second browser. So they don't lose the session with the buyer. Also the way that the widget is configured, we can mark up someone's search engine result to display their counts of reviews and their star rating. So what we see statistically is that companies who display that social proof in their search engine results move up the rankings because their search engine result stands out and gives the buyer what they want, which is some level of social proof. So what does that all translate to? Typically about a 15% lift in organic traffic to those pages. So how do you do the math on that? What would you have spent in PPC in order to drive that same amount of traffic? A test we did with IBM Systems on one of their pages suggested that a single review widget was saving them about $120,000 a year in PPC spend. The third thing is the intent data. So with the intent data, you can measure advertising efficiency. So spend the same amount of dollars in advertising, but get 40% more clicks, spend less and get the same amount of pipeline. And then there are also the secondary benefits of how to use the content and the data to improve your win rate as well. So I wish I could give you a single answer to say, you know, ROA equals this simple formula. Unfortunately, it's not a simple formula. It's a multifaceted formula, but it really comes down to brand influence, using content for conversion and SEO and using data to be more efficient in your marketing and in your win rate. Well, I think that's a great place to land our episode. There's so much here and there's so much more. So I want to ask your permission to distribute a link to this report when we publicize the episode. Is that going to be all right? Absolutely. And if people want to learn more about Trust Radius, I guess they can go to trustradius.com. And how can somebody reach out to you best if they wanted to dig in on any of these topics? They can email me at Vinay, V-I-N-A-Y at trustradius.com, or they can connect with me on LinkedIn, as I think you and I might've connected, but I'm very active on social and on LinkedIn specifically, not so much Twitter, but I would be delighted to have a conversation with anyone who's interested in these topics. Wonderful. And folks, if you want to reach me, I'm LinkedIn slash in slash Ken Lempit. And if you haven't subscribed to the podcast yet, please do so wherever podcasts are distributed. And Vinay, one of the best episodes yet. So thanks so much for being on the podcast. And it was a true pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the SaaS Backwards Podcast, brought to you by Austin Lawrence Group. We're a growth marketing agency that helps SaaS firms reduce churn, accelerate sales, and generate demand. Learn more about us at www.austinlawrence.com. You can email Ken Lempet at kl at austinlawrence.com about any SaaS marketing or customer retention subject. We hope you'll subscribe, and thanks again for listening.